Well, it's a joy to be here. I've only been here less than 24 hours now, and it's been a privilege to get to know Ed and other members in the congregation. Thank you for feeding me and taking care of me and, and welcoming me uh, last night and, of course, this morning as well. Uh, it's a joy and privilege to consider God's Word together with you. And with that in mind, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, as we'll consider verses 13 through 16 of Peter's epistle, Peter's first epistle. I want to thank also the, the elders for allowing a young seminarian to come out here and, and fill the pulpit, so I appreciate, appreciate you guys for allowing that. We'll remind you that the Word of God is inerrant, inspired, and infallible. It's the only rule for faith and practice, and so let us hear it now as the Word of God. First, first Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Thus far as the reading of God's Word, let's pray once more to ask His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have spoken to us in Your Word, infallibly and inerrantly. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us, and specifically Your Son, Jesus Christ, as the only mediator between God and man and the only name by which we can be saved. Thank You for speaking and revealing to us Your Son and our salvation in Him. We pray now, O oh God, that You would grant to us the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and our hearts to receive Your Word, plant it deep in our hearts, shape and fasten us that we may be people in Your likeness and in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we ask. Amen. Well, perhaps you're familiar with Francis Schaeffer's book that he produced in 1987, I believe, How Then Shall We Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Culture. Um, in that book, he's surveying from the beginning of the West, sometime in around Rome, I think he begins with, and surveys through history how the Western culture rose to a particular point of prominence and then how it began to decline, and particularly in the 20th century. And I really want to borrow that title, How Then Shall We Live?, and apply it to our text today in First Peter. Because I believe that that's exactly the question that Peter's trying to answer to the congregation that he's writing to. The churches that Peter wrote to sensed, felt, and experienced the looming threat of persecution, suffering, and ostracism from the culture around them. Peter addresses them in chapter 1, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, those who had been cast out of their homes, who have been displaced and removed from their home territory, those who had been actually scattered across Asia Minor, who weren't familiar with the territory that they were in, who had been exiles, cast out, and were in regions such as Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to people who 
have been exiled. And and notice some of the things that he says about them in this particular letter. Chapter 1, verse 6. In this rejoice, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. You have been grieved by various trials. The testing of your faith is similar to that of gold being tested and purified by fire. This congregation, these churches that Peter's writing to, are grieved by the trials that they're enduring. And not only in 1.6, but also 4, verse 3, read with me. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these things, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They malign you because you do not participate and conform to their particular sinful passions and idolatries. And Peter writes to them, chapter 4, verse 12, and he says, Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as the glory of God is revealed in your suffering. So Peter's writing to a church who's suffering, who's enduring various degrees of persecution from the culture around them. And like the title that Francis Schaeffer gave to us in his book, How Then Shall We Live?, I think Peter's answering the same question to the churches here in Asia Minor. How shall we live when the culture no longer looks favorably on the church? How should we live in a culture that is increasingly becoming antagonistic towards Christianity and the church. Peter gives two answers. First, set your hope on the return of Christ. Set your hope on the return of Christ. Secondly, strive for God-like holiness. Strive for God-like holiness. Peter encourages these churches to be hopeful and holy. A hopeful people and a holy people. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, hope, hope is not a, a wishful thinking. It's not positive thoughts about the future. Usually the way we use hope, it's, it's almost like I, I hope we win the game tomorrow. Or I hope I get a raise. Or, or if you're in high school, I hope I make the varsity team. And when we say hope in our vernacular, we usually mean I want this to happen, I desire something to happen, but I have no idea if it actually will might not actually take place. Not so for the Christian. When the Christian calls, when the Christian life, when we hope, our hopes are not futile. They're not vain. They're not empty. Rather, when we use the word hope and when Peter calls these churches to hope, he's not setting them up for despair or hopelessness. Rather, their hopes are mixed with assurance and confidence and certainty. When Peter calls these churches to hope in the return of Christ, they can be absolutely certain and confident that it will take place, that Christ will return, that He will come back, that He will come again to rescue and deliver His people from all their trials and temptations. So the call and the charge to hope is not an endeavor of hopelessness. No, rather, we can be confident that Christ will return. And that's not because... We're just positive people. That's not because of our personalities that we think really highly or or optimistically. No, it's not based on anything of, of ourselves. Rather, our hope in the return of Christ is entirely grounded upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
which is what Peter mentions in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope, brothers and sisters, not a dead hope. We are the only people on the planet, on the face of the planet, that have true, lasting, real hope. And it's not because we're positive people. It's because Jesus Christ was raised from the grave. And because He was raised, we can be absolutely confident and certain that Jesus Christ will return and come for His people again. And so Peter's charge to this church, rest the full weight of your hope on the return of Christ no matter how dark the days may get, no, how, no matter how dismal life may feel, no matter how discouraging the persecution and suffering might be, rest the full weight of your hope and confidence on the return of Christ, that He is coming and He will deliver and He will rescue you from all your trials and tribulations. He will come again not as a suffering servant, but as an exalted king. He's not coming to die, but rather to deliver his people. And Peter's charge is to look for this, long for this, expect it, set and rest the full weight of your hope and confidence on the day when Jesus Christ comes back. And what will that day be like? What will it be like when Jesus does come back to rescue His church? Peter tells us in verse 13 that it will be a day when grace will be brought to you. A day when grace will be brought to the people of God. There's there's really no better way to describe grace than that it's brought to you by the hands of Jesus. That grace comes to you exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other place where grace may be found except the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only place where grace is located. Or perhaps we could put it another way. God cannot be gracious to any sinner outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is exclusively brought to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that too, that it's brought to you. Grace is brought to you. It's, it's not something that, that we conjured up and conceived. It's, it's not as though you ascended up to the portals of heaven and said, Oh God, could you find a way to be gracious to us sinners down here? No, God came to sinners. God brought grace to sinners. Sinners were running from God. We were trembling and fearful. No one seeks after God, Paul tells us in Romans 3. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, when they heard the voice of God, they hid because they were afraid. The whole human race since the fall of man has been terrified of God and has been running from God. But God is the one who has come to sinners bringing grace. And He came firstly in Genesis 3.15. Grace was brought to you by the promise of Jesus Christ. By the promise of a deliverer. By the promise of a Savior. One who would rescue you and deliver you and pay for all of your sins and bring you into His heavenly throne room of grace. And so in 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. And the promise of grace in the Old Covenant was extended all throughout the 
the historical books, the Proverbs, the minor prophets, the major prophets, all the saints under the Old Covenant, the church in the Old Covenant rested on a promise that Christ would come. They believed the grace of God and the promise of a coming Savior, and they looked for it. They longed for the day when Jesus Christ would come. And He did. He did come. And Psalm 45 tells us that Christ came with grace on His lips. That He came speaking grace, proclaiming and preaching a message of grace to sinners. And from the cradle to the cross, Jesus cried out to sinners, Come unto Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon Me and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Christ came to sinners. He left the portals of heaven. He came down to earth, lived in a manger, and He came to sinners proclaiming the grace of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Come unto Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for there grace may be found. There's no other name apart from Jesus Christ by which men can be saved. And Christ came with grace on His lips. Reminded of the the hymn, from heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. And with His own blood He bought her and for her life He died. From heaven He came and He came and He brought grace to sinners. Grace was brought to sinners by the promise of Christ in the Old Covenant. Grace was purchased by the blood of Christ in the New Covenant. And now we can be absolutely certain, confident, assured, hopeful that Christ will come again and it will be a day of grace for sinners because He will deliver you and rescue you from all your trials, from all your tears, from all your tribulations. Christ is coming for His bride. He's coming to rescue the godly from an ungodly world. And Peter's charge is rest the full weight of your hope on that day. And as you wait for that day to come, verse 13, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Hope engages the mind. It includes the cognitive faculties. It's not just an emotion or a feeling. Hope includes and engages the mind. This is not easy for us today to use our minds. It's not easy to engage the mind to set the hope, set our hope on the return of Christ because we can be easily distracted by the culture that is around us. And so you will even notice in the footnote, if you're using the ESV, the, it says in the Greek, it could be translated, girding up the loins of your mind. Girding up the loins of your mind. This, this is an idiom that essentially means tighten your belt and roll up your sleeves. And be prepared to run. Get in a posture of readiness because you may be called to go somewhere and you need to be ready to go. This phrase, gird up the loins, is actually used in the Passover feast in Exodus chapter 12 when Moses called the people, whenever you eat this Passover meal, I want you to eat the meal with your shoes on and your belts fastened or your loins girded because the Exodus is going to happen. It's going to be quick. The ten plagues have already taken place and you need to be ready to get out of Egypt because the day is going to come fast and you need to have your belts fastened and your shoes on. 
Likewise, Jesus used the same phrase in Luke chapter 12. He said, Keep your loins girded and your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home. Jesus was helping his disciples understand that he will come back. And his instruction to them, until he comes back, keep your loins girded and be like men that are waiting for their master to come home. Be like men whose minds are engaged to think about the return of Christ, whose minds are occupied with the day that will occur when Jesus Christ will come back and rescue his bride. The charge here is get in the right mindset. Prepare your minds for action. Get in the right way of thinking because Christ will come back and it's going to take place quickly. And you need to be ready. You need to be in the right mindset. And the real danger here, if we fail to prepare our minds for the return of Christ, if we fail to engage our minds for the day when Christ will come back for His church, then we will set our hopes on any and everything else than the return of Christ. Our minds will not be occupied with the then, the future. Rather, our minds will be so preoccupied with the now. And that's always the case. Those who are so preoccupied with the now never think about the then. Never think about the day when Christ will come back or what heaven will be like. And so that's why Peter adds, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded in your thinking. He's not talking about a, a beverage here. No, he's, he's talking about the inebriation of our minds because we can so easily and naturally become captivated and enthralled with whatever the world throws at us. Whatever is in our faces can so easily distract us from the return of Christ and what our minds should be on. And brothers and sisters, this can take place in times of prosperity as well as in times of difficulty. In times of prosperity, we become so infatuated with the empty allurements of this present world that we never think about the next world. It's because this life is so good. Our food is so, so delightful. Our, our beds are so cozy. Our cars are so convenient. Why, why would we ever think about heaven when our life here on earth feels like heaven? And so we can become lulled to sleep, as it were, when we become so fixated and drawn to the present world that we never think about the return of Christ. And Peter's saying, no, set your hope fully on that day and prepare your mind for that day. Not only in days of prosperity, when life is good and things are going well and your hopes and, and desires are fulfilled, but also in days of difficulty, particularly the, the churches that Peter's writing to. When the world turns against the church, when the politician doesn't get elected that you had hoped, even scholars wrestle with the date of this epistle, and most of them think that it was right before the reign of Nero. And so perhaps the church was thinking to themselves, we hope that a, an emperor will be elected who's favorable towards Christians. And so Peter's charging the church, even in times of difficulty, don't let your minds become distracted and diverted by the calamities and the crisis in your culture. And that's very easy in our world today, is it not? There are those in our culture who promise to alleviate the difficulty and the crisis and the misery that we find ourselves in. Listen to me. Trust me, I, I can alleviate and solve your misery and your problems. And it's very distracting. 
It's very easy at that point to place our hopes on a politician, a a social worker, uh, on somebody who promises the alleviation of our misery. Peter's charge is even in times of difficulty. Don't let your minds be distracted and diverted from looking and longing for the return of Christ. And perhaps we could sum it up and put it this way. Peter's charge to the church to prepare their minds for the return of Christ is essentially saying this. Jesus expects us to expect him when he comes back. He expects the church to expect him. It's not going to look very good for the church if Jesus comes back and the response is, I wasn't ready for you yet. I wasn't expecting you to come back so soon. Could you give us maybe a couple more days to get some things right in our lives? Now is not a convenient time, perhaps a week from now, and I need to settle things with my mother. I need to get back in church. I need to start reading my Bible again. Peter's saying, no, we need to be in the posture, in the mindset, where we're expecting to God, to Christ to come back now so that when he does come back, we can say, I've been waiting for this day. I've been expecting you to come. That's the response that we as a church ought to have when Christ comes back. So Peter's charge, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the return of Christ. Wait for it. Expect it. Long for it. Engage your mind as you look for it. But not only Set your hope on the return of Christ. But secondly, strive for godlike holiness in an ungodly age. Strive for godlike holiness. The world in which Peter and these churches lived was an unholy and ungodly world, similar to a world like ours today, an unregenerate and ungodly world. And so Peter's charge is be a holy people. Be a holy people, a people who are set apart for God. Or so in verse. And there's a, there's a negative and positive aspect of holiness that we cannot miss. Negative and positive aspect. Negatively, Peter tells us in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That side of holiness, the negative side of holiness, is refraining from conformity to your sinful desires and passions. Resisting the urges and temptations to be conformed by your lustful and sinful passions. Or as J.B. Phillips puts it, Don't let your character be molded by the desires of your ignorant days. The charge is do not be conformed to your sinful passions. Resist the intense longing and craving for that which is forbidden or illicit or off-limits or prohibited and strive as Christians to be holy as God is holy. Peter uses this same word, passions, in chapter 2, verse 11, when he says... Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Abstain from those passions which wage war against your soul. Refuse them. Resist them. These are the kinds of passions that Jesus actually talked about in the parable of the sower. In Mark 4.19, when the seed of God's word gets thrown out into the third soil, the soil of thorns, it says that there are a number of things that choke that word out so that it proves unfruitful. It says, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Resist those desires because those desires have a desire 
to choke the Word of God. Your passions, your desires have an appetite. They have an opinion. They have a will. They can be certainly at times strong. In Peter's words here, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance before you became a Christian. Those desires that you had and the lifestyle that you lived, don't go back to that lifestyle. Don't be conformed to those desires you had before you became a Christian. And before you were a Christian, your desires determined how you lived, how you thought, how you acted, what you did. If you wanted to steal and the opportunity was there, you did what your desires wanted and you stole. If you wanted to lust and the opportunity was there, you lusted. If you wanted to cheat and the opportunity was there, you fulfilled your desires and you, you cheated. Your character, your lifestyle, your behavior was determined by your desires. Peter's saying, no longer. You are no longer determined. Your lifestyle, your character is no longer determined by your sinful desires. This is true of non-Christians, certainly, and I, I firmly believe that it is especially true in our day today. We live in a world of people who conform to their desires, who take on a lifestyle, an identity, a personification based on what they feel. If it feels good, it is good. If it feels right, it is right. I am what I feel, and I do whatever I want. I do what my desires tell me to do. Peter's charge is, that's not the Christian life. That's not the Christian way. We no longer submit to the desires of our sinful passions. We resist and refrain from those. That is not the way of holiness. We are to be a people who live in the world without being conformed to the world. Now, if we stop here, and if we, if we end our discussion on holiness here by saying it is refraining from sinful desires and activities, we, we cut it short. There's so much more to holiness than just refraining from sinful activities. And if we leave it there, it's almost just like moralism. Just do good. Just be good. Obey the law of God because you're supposed to. But holiness here and for the Christian life is much more than that. There's a positive aspect to holiness for Christians. The holiness that Peter calls the church to, he says in verse 15, 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Our holiness is to model and match and be patterned after the holiness of God. Well, what is God's holiness like? Yes, it's true. God's separate from sin. He's distinct from sin and separated from sin. But there's another aspect to God's holiness. And it's, it's seen in the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a holy and pure love and devotion for one another. The Father loves the Son with a holy and pure love, and the Son loves the Father with a holy and pure love, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son, and the Father and the Son love the Spirit with a holy and pure love. There is no half-hearted love of the Father and the Son, and the Son doesn't love the Father half-heartedly. No, but these three love one another wholeheartedly, without duplicity, without hypocrisy, without any mixture or division. All of their heart is centered and focused on the other. And that is not only modeled for us in the persons of the Trinity, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have loved the Bride of Christ with a pure, holy, unmixed, undivided love. 
The Father has loved you. The Son has loved you. The Spirit has loved you unreservedly, without duplicity, without hypocrisy, without any division in His heart. All of who He is is devoted to His church, the apple of His eye, the bride of Christ. So when Peter calls the church to holiness, that's the model that we are to love the Lord our God with an undivided and pure heart. That is what we are to strive for, a holy and pure and unmixed love for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is what's modeled for us in the Trinity. That's what's modeled for us in the plan and action of redemption. And that is how we are to respond to our triune God with a holy and pure love for God. So the call, Peter's call to holiness is not only refrain from the impulses of your desires. That is certainly true and an important aspect of holiness. But love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love Him with all your being. That is what holiness looks like. I don't love the sin over here, but I love God. And that is what we are to strive to and that is what we have the privilege of enjoying in all of eternity with God. A purified heart, a heart that is purged of duplicity. And we may, for the first time, love the Lord our God with all our being, with all of who we are. So again, to answer Francis Schaeffer's question, how then shall we live? How then should the church live in a culture that becomes increasingly antagonistic to the church and Christianity? Set your hope on the return of Christ. Don't let your mind get diverted by those who promise rescue from your misery or by the allurements and the pleasures of the world. Don't get diverted or distracted and be a holy people. A holy people who refrain from sin in all its forms and the desires of sin, and resolve to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, strength, and all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mighty privilege of worship, coming into your presence, giving you praise, hearing your word preached. Father, we praise you for revealing yourself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that you have not abandoned us in a world full of misery and difficulty and trial and tribulation, but you have given us hope, a certain and sure hope on the return of Christ. And Father, we look for it. We long for it. We hope in it. And we pray that you would hasten the day when Christ would come back and deliver and rescue his people from all their trials. And Father, help us to be a holy people, set aside for you, having a heart full of love towards you and your Son and your Spirit. Help us in this, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.